0: Revelation, how many of you are wondering if we're ever going to get done? Well, the good news is we are almost to chapter 19. In chapter 19, it's finally really good news. Jesus is coming back. You know, we wait and wait and wait in the Revelation. I can't imagine the waiting and what it must have been like for any of those believers that were surviving yet as it was coming to the end of the tribulation. So last week, we talked about chapter 17. And I mentioned chapter 17 and 18. And again, these are more of a kind of a more detailed view of what takes place towards the very end of the tribulation. Towards the time when that that final vial, that bowl of wrath, God's wrath, I mean, it's coming, it's there. It's like if you could take time and just condense it down, we're right before the final judgment is totally played out. But we're getting a little bit more of a view of what's been coming up to this particular point. Chapter 17 was about Babylon, as chapter 18 is about Babylon. But we've talked about how Babylon is not always just a city. It means more than that. It's like a system, a worldwide system. As a matter of fact, I believe in a lot of ways we are living in a world that's already being dominated to a large degree by that Babylonian system that's out there. So when you hear that word Babylon, don't always think city. It's kind of like if I say the word Wall Street, How many of you think of a road in New York City? Or do we think of banking and finance and all of that type of thing? Or if I say Hollywood, how many of you think of a town named Hollywood? We don't, we think of the picture industry, the film industry. So when we hear Babylon and we read about it in these, we need to think in a broader way than just an individual city, this Babylonian type system that's out there. In chapter 17, and as I've been thinking about this this week and even again this morning, you know, God's judgment. When I think about this false religious system, where, where this Antichrist, who is either possessed by, controlled by, whatever you want, a word you want to use, by a demon, by Satan, and he sets himself up as God and declares that he is God and demands that everybody's going to worship him, images of him and he's going to be in the Holy of Holies in the temple, I can see why God would say, oh boy, are you in trouble. I am not going to put up with this. It's been long enough. Judgment's coming. That's easy for me to relate to. But it's interesting in the other side of this Babylonian system, what it is that God is really coming against and judging. It's this this political system, but even more so as we look at chapter 18, it's this materialistic system system this system of greed and lavish living this motivation it's there's the idol of the antichrist but he's saying there's this idol called materialism power greed it's all there and that's what he's judging so harshly and i think about and as i and i go through this I, <clears throat> i'm not trying to make too close a connection necessarily But I think we can't hardly read these chapters without kind of measuring it against where we are today as a country. The things that are already happening as a country. You know, and and around the world, too. We talked a little bit last week about the religion and the way air and heresy is creeping in. You know, Gloria shared something with me this morning. Group, the people that make these BBSs that we do, they're under attack the particular program that we're going to be using is under attack by the secular world because it's not politically correct. It's racist. It's doing all of these things that they're trying. And and sadly, there's a revised edition because of the pressure put on to ministries. And it's going to happen, and it's going to increase, and it's going to happen to churches that stand boldly for the truth of God. It's going to happen as you as individuals declare truth Even though you're walking in love to the very nth degree, you're still going to take persecution and attack. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Now we're into chapter 18. It's this economic system. And it's interesting, if you recall last week, Satan, the Antichrist, the political system, if you would, used the religious system until they're not necessary anymore. So the the religious system that was there was destroyed by the Antichrist and his allies. He didn't need him anymore, and this has really happened historically, from the beginning of time almost. Governments, people in positions of power, will use, manipulate religion. That's why religion has got such a bad rap historically. You ever say how many wars were started because of Christians or Christians killing Christians? It's true. It has. And the, the, the government uses them as long as they needed them until the Antichrist is ready to step into power. Then he destroys the religious thing. He throws out that one world religion and he says, I am it. I am it. Now in chapter 18, God is going to judge the political system, the economic system, this whole spirit of materialism and greed. And he is the one that's going to destroy it. Personally going to come. And take care of it. So I'm going to go ahead and read. And I know a lot of you aren't going to be able to see the words up there. So we're in chapter 18 of Revelation. I'm going to go ahead and read the chapter. And then we're going to talk about it. Not so much a verse-by-verse exegesis, but more looking at it in terms of what's taking place, who the people groups are, and maybe trying to compare it to even a little bit where we are today. So let's pray first. Heavenly Father, I pray as we read your word that you give us understanding and revelation. God, we thank you for the warnings in your word. and I pray that you would help us, Father God, to learn from your word, be observant of what's going on around us, and be able to stand as the time of the end gets nearer and nearer. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse one. After this, I saw another angel come down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor, the glory of God. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as a queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore in one day her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, famine. She will be consumed by fire for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, They will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon, city of power, in one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargos of cinnamon and spice, of incense and myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, carriages, and bodies and souls of men. It gives you a picture of the wealth, the exorbitant wealth, the luxury that they, they were desiring and that they were living in. And it's all going to be gone in a moment. They will say, the fruit you long for, and that's the word, that phrase right there is where the title of my message is coming from. The fruit that you long for is gone from you. All your riches and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, woe, 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 great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by by ship, the sailors, and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. And when they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe, O great city! Where are all who had ships on the where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth? In one hour she's been brought to ruin. And then all of a sudden it says, Rejoice over her. O oh heaven, rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea. And said with such violence the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, flute players and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No workman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of the bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's great men. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints and of all who have been killed on the earth. When you read that, again, reminding us, this is why there's confusion and disagreement. Is it the city of Babylon? And it could be. It, could it be ancient Babylon being been rebuilt? It Could be. Or is it simply symbolic of this system of Babylon or Babylonianism? It could be. Maybe it's both. But I want to make sure we understand that it goes beyond a single city because this this plague of adultery, when it talks about adultery, it means they've abandoned God as their bridegroom and they've embraced the things of the world. And this is a worldwide judgment. So this whole system is going to be torn down and destroyed in no time at all. Is the one hour, a literal one hour, or does it just mean it's gonna come suddenly and be a short period? We don't, they don't agree on that either. This is one of the places where they talk about burned in an hour, this is where some people say the nuclear war is coming. So you can see all the possibilities, but the reality is we don't understand all the details. And we don't have to from my perspective. But what we need to understand and know is it's all gonna be gone it, very suddenly these people who have been under the spell of the Antichrist and Satan, those that have taken the mark of the beast, whatever that truly looks like, so that they can buy and sell and trade. They are going to be judged and everything that they've been lying and cheating and taking advantage of people for, for years, is all going to be gone in a moment's time. And as we look at these verses, we're going to look at a couple of responses a couple of lifestyles, and a couple of attitudes that cause all what we see in the responses of the people to take place. And I want to just share that there was a pastor's message from years ago, uh, Pat Damian, Damiani is his name, that he laid out these first three things, so they're not original with me, so I want to give him credit for it, but it really resonated with me. For the two responses that we see in chapter 18 When we read it, it's total collapse. And how is the world going to respond? Well, the world, the world system is going to respond with weeping and mourning. We read read those words at least four times in most translations. And even as as it was talking about this world system or Babylon declaring, you know, that I'm not a widow and I will never mourn. Oh, yeah. No idea what's coming. The kings of the earth, no idea what's coming. The most of the world is going to respond with weeping and mourning. And we're going to see the response. First, the worldly response. This, this response to, to, to Babylonianism being destroyed. First of all, there's going to be three groups that we see in here. And this guy labeled these three groups in more current and modern words. First group, the kings who were so easily led astray by the power that they could have by joining with the Antichrist. The power, the the ability to get rich by misusing their power. And he said, look in the world today, does that sound like political leaders? Where political leaders used to go with a servant's heart and they had the good of the country or the nations in their mind when they were serving. And not just in our country, but around the world. But what's taking place, there seems to be an overwhelming number who lose that focus completely. They become consumed with power, and there were some interesting statistics <clears throat> looking at the wealth of our own representatives in Washington, D.C, and what's happened to their wealth since they got elected on salaries that sound good to most of us of 160, 70,000, but all of a sudden they have 40, 60, 80, 120 million dollars net worth. Where is it coming from? In the world today, he says, the political leaders, all of that power, all of that wealth, no matter how it was accumulated, is going to be gone, the first group of people. And then he labeled the next group small businessmen. And he looked at verses 11 and 15 and 16 in particular. This next group are mentioned are merchants. Now, the word merchants was used almost for two different groups of people. And here he labeled these the small businessmen. And again, none of these people could do any business whatsoever unless they received the mark of the beast. So they all have turned to the Antichrist. And they, in good times, like small businessmen today, in good times they make money. In bad times, not so good. But well, bad times are coming. And the small businessmen, it says, are going to be weeping and mourning as all of it starts to fall apart, the whole system around them. And then he labeled the third group of merchants as bi- the big corporations. And he, put the, he looked at it as this guy read that. He, he's looking at where it talks about those who owned the ships, the sailors of the sea. He looked at those as those who produce and transport all the goods. And you can look at the goods as we read of the wealth that was there, all of those goods that they were transporting, and then they would be the ones that would sell it to the businessmen, the small businessmen and eventually get to the people. And he says, these guys who have gotten really rich, really wealthy, controlled so much, are going to lose it all in a moment's time. This all takes place suddenly, and they're going to weep, and they're going to mourn. All of these things are predicted with certainty from the Word of God, and it, it challenges me in my own heart when we talk about materialism and greed, how easy it is to get seduced by that. And it's even interesting that the Antichrist, the tool that he chose to use to make people worship him, was that mark that enabled you to buy and sell. The motivator. But not everyone's going to weep and mourn There were two groups of people, two different responses. It said, weep and mourn, weep and mourn, weep and mourn, weep and mourn. And then it said, rejoice, O heaven, rejoice. When we look at verse 20, rejoice over her, O heaven, you saints, apostles, prophets, for God has given judgment against you. God's people, it appears that God's people from heaven are going to know finally judgment is coming. God had promised to revenge upon those who have persecuted and murdered and tormented for so long. And it also looks like that remnant that may be remaining at the end. Rejoice. Rejoice. Those that did not take the mark of the beast, those of you who are still on the earth that have not been martyred, rejoice. Why? Well, they're going to get there what they deserve. That might be something to rejoice over. But I think almost probably more powerfully would be Jesus is coming soon. The end is about here. It's time to rejoice over, over what's going to take place. These two responses, the weeping and mourning or the rejoicing, they come from something deeper than the obvious reasons. And I think what they, where they come from, I, I, I'm looking at is the lifestyles and the attitudes that they come out of. Looking at the lifestyles first. The world, the world around us, greed and indulgence. Greed and indulgence. What does indulgence mean? It's just excess. I mean, how much is enough? One dollar more. How big a house is big enough? A few thousand square feet more. How much car is necessary? Oh, a lot more. How much this? How much that? Indulgence. Way more than you would need. But boy, oh boy, you gotta have it. Greed and indulgence. The lifestyle of the world. The world around us. In verse 7 that I read, it said this. And she glorified herself, Babylon or the Babylonian system. And she lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I will never see. In other words, I've got it. I'm it. I am the rich and famous. I am all these things. What I've got, no one can take from me. I don't have to bow to anyone. The lifestyle, of the rich and famous from God's perspective. They live in luxury and in perpetual self-indulgence. You know anybody like that? You ever find yourself being like that? I just need this. I just need that. I want that. self indulgent What do you do to get it? Well, they took the mark of the beast. They laid down everything, eternity, for the lust of the flesh, indulgence. The reality is greed and self-indulgence aren't limited to the rich and famous. The reality is God's people, his church, are attacked with the same desires and lusts all the time. Self-indulgence, instant gratification, you want to <clears throat> this is where the pastor steps on toes, OK? I put my steel-toed shoes on. But evidence of self-indulgence? A four-letter word. Debt. Debt. How many of you know debt is not necessarily a biblical principle that we should desire? Debt. Where does debt come from? We need something. We want something. We don't have money to pay for it. Mm. But I have a credit card. They're not going to make me pay for 16 years and no interest till then. I can have it. I want it. I need it. As Christians, we can get in such bondage to debt because of this desire that we have to have something that the reality is most of the time we don't have to have it. You know, there's some statistics, and I'm not gonna get bogged down in statistics, but these are from 2016, so they're not the most recent. But the average American household carries $16,061 of credit card debt. The average American family in 2016, $16,061 in debt. Here's a very interesting statistic for all you millennials and uh, you learn from us, sadly, but they did a study on millennials from the age of 25 to 34. They have an average debt of $42,000. $42,000. And if I'm a millennial sitting out there, I go, yeah, but you don't know how expensive college is. Well, the reality is, college debt was on the list, but it was only number three. Number one was credit cards. Number two was auto loans. And number three was college debt. Now, I, I get this college debt thing. I understand. But credit cards, scary. Psalms 37, verse 21 said The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. Proverbs 22.7 says, The rich rule over the poor and the borrower is a slave of the lender. That verse has stuck in my head for a long, long time. I feel, you feel like you're a slave to debt. And whoever owns that debt, you feel like they own you. Or just ignore it and don't pay it. Romans 13.8, Owe no man anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another is fulfilled by, has fulfilled the law. I don't have time to do a whole sermon on debt. But God has a lot of things to say about it. There are some things that don't seem to be that kind of debt. Um, for example, uh, a lot of people would say it's not debt, for example, if you have a mortgage and your house is worth more than the mortgage is. It's not debt. It doesn't work so good with property like cars and automobiles of that nature. We all have to live in the system that we live in, right? We all are in the economic system of America. We're part of it. Um, We can't survive without participating in it. But we have to learn to to be a part of it without being enticed by greed and indulgence. It's our heart attitude. In verse 4 it said, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her. Come out of that system. The words kind of remind me of when Jesus was praying for his disciples. He prayed to the Father. You know, Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but protect their hearts while they're in the world. I'm paraphrasing. And this is what it means for us to come out of that system. Don't get it entangled in the system. We are in, in that system, but we're not of that system. We have to buy and sell. That's how our country works, so that's how economies work. But are we being ensnared in that greed? That thing that says we've got to have more, the indulgence. We need more, we have to have more. God's people, this is the second <coughs> lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of separation. And that's the way we should be living as Christians. We are separate from the world. We are part of it, we participate in it, but it hasn't got its claws in me. That's the way we need to live. We are separated. We come out of that. We're not going to get ensnared in it, but Christians do easily get ensnared. It's an attitude of the heart. It's a, it's a mental thing. It's not physically. We can't be physically, well, I'm just, you know we're going to go live on a mountaintop somewhere and not play with the system anymore. That's not very realistic. But coming out of it so it's not ensnared us, trapped us. The problem really comes even as we're living in the system when all of a sudden, we start to get our security and our joy from the blessings of god instead of our security coming in from god himself and it's easy to do you know god wants us he wants to bless us you know if you got the gift of giving he's going to have to give you the gift of getting hearts have to be right hearts have to be right he wants us to be blessed but do we always remember whose it is and where the blessing's coming from? I'm sure we can all think of people or times in our own lives when we've thought things like, if I only had fill-in-the-blank, then I'd be happy. If I only had, I had a relative. I can, I can remember these things so clearly. If I only get my basement remodeled, I will be so happy. If I can only get rid of that old Toyota and get a new one, I will so be happy. And then one time she called me and my wife into the basement of a house to share with me, her and her husband, that she's finally going to have the key to happiness. Her husband and her are getting a divorce. No, it's a good thing, Mike. (laughs) What? I, I think she thought she could convince me. I'll be happy. As soon as we start thinking that the things of the world, the blessings of God, material things, are our source of security, if I only get this much in my retirement savings account, whew, I'll be able to quit working and have enough till the end. Well, that's a nice thought, but is that your security or is God your security? Do you believe he will meet all your needs? And, and, and you, you know, don't think I have got this figured out because we all wrestle with these things but we need to understand it's a snare it's a snare of the enemy to catch us in a trap you've probably heard this verse or some version of this verse being misquoted for the love of money is the root we all most of all of us said it wrong the love of money is not the root of all evil the root, love of money is the root of all kinds of evil Many kinds of evil. See how we take a verse and just mess with it? I think Satan's actually the root of all evil. But the love of money does bring all kinds of problems into our lives. Even the things that we think are blessings can be turned just like that into evil things in our lives that bring all kinds of pain onto us. Paul quoted Isaiah in 2 Corinthians and he used these words. He just said, touch no unclean thing. Touch no unclean thing. Don't desire it, Don't get ensnared. You're in the system, but just don't touch it. Don't let it grab a hold of you. Don't let it get a hold of you. Touch no unclean thing. So we have the two groups of people, two different lifestyles here, the separation. or living with this greed and indulgence. And I think there's a third thing that drives it all, and it's an attitude. Two different attitudes for these two different groups of people that are living two different types of lifestyles and are going to respond in two different ways to the judgments that come. The first attitude is the world's attitude. And it's what I've been talking about. Longing for stuff. The world. There's never enough. Your flesh will never be satisfied. Ever. Ever, ever, ever. The world system will never provide enough, ever. There is only one source of pure joy, pure hope, pure peace, and it's Jesus Christ. It is nothing else, nothing. But the world system says, no, I need more stuff, longing for stuff. The reason so many people are so willing to gauge an immoral lifestyle, they'll lie, cheat, deceive, do whatever it takes to get ahead is because they are longing for stuff. The title of my message, if it never got up there, is Longing for Jesus. Who do you long for? Do we long for stuff, or do we truly long for Jesus? We sang sang that song this morning about waiting for his return. Are we waiting? How many of us give that a thought every single day? Jesus, is this the day you're coming back? Lord, is this the day I get to come home and be in your presence forever? It's it's the world around us, gets a hold of us. What are we longing for? Longing for that instant gratification. And I hope this isn't our attitude, because the attitude of the world. Sometimes an illustration or an example helps us. Instant gratification. If I told you today I have an opportunity, for every single one of you, I got an investment for you. Here's the deal. I guarantee you, for every dollar you invest with me, you will lose 40 cents. Please sign up. How many of you would jump in with all you got and say, I want in? I want in. This is the, this is the literal reality of the lottery. Statistics. You wanna be in that 99.99% that you are guaranteed you will lose, 40 cents for every dollar. Oh, you might win now and then, but guess what? The averages show 40 cents on every dollar. Over 70 billion dollars for lottery tickets. And one third of the poorest part of our population buy over 50% of the tickets. It is the only tax that people get in line around convenience stores and goes around blocks to pay their tax. Why? I might win. Then what? I get a bigger house. I get fancier cars. I don't have to worry about retirement. I know you guys probably have heard the statistics and I didn't even look them up. You know what percentage of those people lose everything in just a matter of five to seven years? It's crazy. What is the enticing, what is the draw What is it? I mean, I've even said to myself, and I I want you to know I've never bought a lottery ticket, but someone bought me one once, and I took it. And I'm not saying you're going to hell if you bought a lottery ticket. (laughs) One foot, no. (laughs) There are a few people that look at it as recreation and put budgeted in. Hey, if that's what you like to do for recreation, I'd rather golf. But the reality is, even if you want it, your happiness is gonna be short-lived. Until, it'll probably last as long as it takes for all your relatives to find out you won, (laughs) and all your friends. But the reality is, it's that idea of instant gratification. This will change everything and I will be happy. It's a curse put on our country. It's a way to cut taxes without anybody complaining. The world's attitude of longing for stuff God's remnant or God's people should be longing for Jesus. Are we longing for Jesus? Is that our heart's desire, to be with Jesus, to know him better, to spend eternity with him? Is that our goal? Is that our attitude? Is that where we live? Are we eagerly awaiting in the scriptures that I read from from Paul and then also what we read um, here in Revelation? Are we eagerly waiting, searching, awaiting for? Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 73, verse 25, "Whom Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength, my heart, my portion forever. Are we longing for Jesus like that? Hard, isn't it? It's hard to keep our focus. It's hard to long for Jesus. Do we know, how do we know, where we're at? And this could be an all separate servant, but I'm going to share two questions you can ask yourself to kind of discover what you're longing for. The first question is simply this: How do I view myself? Am I the owner? Or the steward. What is a steward? A steward is someone who manages somebody else's stuff. Am I an owner or am I a steward? Does everything belong to God or is it mine to do what I want with? If I really believe that I am a steward and I'm longing for Jesus, I will handle all of my gifts, my time, my talent, my treasures in a different way. However, if I think I own it all, I am good, I work hard, I deserve it, I've climbed the ladder, I'm finally there, it's mine. It's easy to fall into that trap. And when we get there, we do whatever we want with it. So that's the first question you can ask. Am I a steward or am I the owner? The second question is right along with it. Do I give God my very best? And I'm not to go into the whole sermon on tithing or giving. But do I give him the very best? If I'm truly a steward, it should be really easy. If I'm stewarding your property or your finances or your children, whatever has been put in my responsibility for whatever period of time, and if I'm truly stewarding it, I want to give the very, very best I can for you. But if it's mine, I might get a little sloppy. I might get a little careless. I might get a little wasteful, depending on what it is, and I just do what I want with it. Proverbs 3, verse 9 says this Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Now, we don't measure anymore by crops so much in this country. Most of us now, with this measurement, could be your finances, your first fruits of your wealth. Giving of first fruits means we're giving of our first portion. We're giving the first, we're giving the best. Back in the agrarian times when it was agriculture, that meant that when the first part of your crop was right, that's what you took, and you gave it to God. And it was a testimony of your faith that the rest of the crop was coming in. Here with our finances, our first fruits, I'm gonna give God the first fruits. If we believe in tithing as a principle, which I do, it means I'm giving him 10% right off the top. It's really hard for us if we have a job because the government's already taken their percent. I'm going to give him the 10% right off the top. First fruits. It belongs to him anyway. It's all his. We all say that. And if we hang on to it with every ounce of strength we got, it's all his. Do we give it to him first? Is it our very best? Or do we give him the leftovers? Or frankly, do we give him anything at all? The leftovers really aren't a whole lot better than nothing at all. Because God's not concerned about how much I'm giving. He's concerned about my heart. Well, I've got $8.30 left this month. God, I'll go ahead and give that to you now. Now I'm broke, and it's your fault. We can get so goofy in our thinking. It's about the heart. God loves a generous giver. Generous. It's an attitude of our heart. But it's a principle. Under the Mosaic law, it was a law. God said, you're going to tithe. 10% you're going to tithe, and actually there are other tithes that made the percentage even higher, but we'll just stick with that one. 10%, Ten percent, you're going to tithe under the law, and he took it very seriously. And the prophet Malachi, these are the words the prophet wrote. He said, "This will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Under the law, God considered it being he, we were we were stealing from him. If they didn't give, it, they were stealing from him." And we can say the law has been fulfilled, and it has. All of that's true. But this tithing principle existed way before Moses ever received the law. And I believe it's a principle that's in, fact in place today. God promises he will bless his people, not just for obedience, but for demonstrating faith, trust. You know, if someone puts their trust in you, what does that cause you to even do more of? I want, them to, I want them to trust me. I, I want to I thank him for trusting me. I want to bless him for trusting me. The Heavenly Father is way better at that than all of us. And he takes it seriously, so seriously, back then under the law, and I believe even today, because he promises some amazing promises for those that did what he asked. Proverbs three nine that I just read: Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. Was followed by Proverbs three ten. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. Give me the first ten percent, and you aren't even going to be able to hardly get rid of the other ninety. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. Another scripture I read in Malachi 3.8 and nine, where it talks about robbing God, and verse ten goes on and says, "Test me in this." I remember the first time I read that. I thought, all right. I don't think I called him big guy, but I probably thought that. All right. This is the only place you're going to find God saying, go ahead, test me. How many of you know if God says, test me, you're going to lose? He's going to win. He's going to do what he says. He says, test me in this says the Lord God Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you won't have enough room for it all. Those are promises of God for us. If we have the attitude of a steward, that should automatically flow out of us. We're trusting him, our faith is in him, he is our hope, everything comes from him, every good thing comes from above, everything is his. Trust me, test me in this. See that I won't be faithful to my promises. This is an attitude that we have or should have. This attitude of being a steward will cause us to live a life of separation so that our response will be one of rejoicing when things go and God fulfills all of his word. Or we can have that longing for stuff attitude that the world has, and it turns into greed and indulgence And when we lose it all, there will be nothing but weeping and mourning. I know we've all heard the line, you can't take it with you. Good question is, why would you want to? Why would you want to? I think heaven's going to be so much better than anything we've got here. So the question we need to keep asking is, you know, do we want to be different? Are we different than the world? We're living in it. I think we can all see what's taking place around us. If we observe it all, we're either going to be part of the world or we're going to separate ourselves from the world. We need to survive and live in it and function in it, but it cannot get its claws in us because it will tear us down. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, I just thank you so much for your love and your goodness towards us, your promises of your faithfulness and your demonstration of your faithfulness. God, the way that you have promised to meet the needs of your children. God, we know we go through difficult times. We go through challenges. And Lord, you never promised you're going to pluck us out of those difficult times. You never promised to to change and remove all the challenges, but you promised you're never going to leave us, never going to forsake us. You're going to walk through them all with us. And we can have our hope and confidence in the creator of the universe, the Lord God Almighty. I thank you for that. I pray we'd find our peace in that. Lord, I pray that you would just speak to each one of our hearts. God, I pray that, that the enemy cannot throw any guilt or condemnation at anyone from what I've shared this morning, but God, that your Holy Spirit would encourage us and strengthen us, that we would grab a hold of your promises and put our trust and faith in a God who loves us, he promises to meet every need, that you're always with us, you know our futures. You know our pasts. You know what's going on in our lives today and you'll love us anyway. And I just thank you for that. Lord, I thank you that you've given us your word that we can be a people that are prepared and watchful, paying attention to the signs of the times that we're living in. Give us grace, give us wisdom as we try to live out the command that you've given to us too to be your hands and feet, to go into all the world and make disciples. That we might see many, many, many come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Now I pray, Lord, for our week ahead. I pray especially for this Vacation Bible School. I pray for each child that you're going to bring this direction. I pray for every single one of the volunteers that are going to invest in these children. God, we thank you for Gloria and all the others that have put in so much work preparing for this day to come. Lord, we pray for your protection over the facility and the grounds around this facility, that our kids, the children, would be safe. Father, in the name of Jesus. And we pray for the seeds that are planted to take root in the youngest of hearts that would grow and begin to bear fruit for your glory and for your honor. We pray, Father, that the message that's being taught will go from the children to the parents. God, so many of the people that come even are unchurched. Lord, I pray that what they want for their kids, they would discover for themselves. Lord, we thank you and pray that you would keep us all safe. Watch over us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.